For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. There's several Herods in the, in the Gospels and in Acts. This is the third Herod. The first one was King Herod the Great. He was the one that tried to kill Jesus when Je- Jesus was a baby. He died in about 4 BC. The next one was Herod Antipas. He was the guy who interviewed Christ the morning that he was crucified. This guy, King Herod Agrippa I, this is different than Agrippa II, who we'll see later on in the book of Acts, who Paul is going to testify before. This is Herod Agrippa I. It's kind of interesting how God keeps trying to witness to the Herod family. None of them seem very spiritually interested, though. This guy, he, he only ruled in Jerusalem for about three years, from 41 to 44 AD. And so the events that we're reading here tonight, they took, they took place either in 42 or 43 AD. It says he began to persecute some believers in the church. In fact, it says he went so far as to have the apostle James, the brother of John, killed with a sword. Yes, this is John, sorry, this is James, the son of Zebedee. Not only was this guy one of the original 12 apostles, this guy was one of the big three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. You remember in the Gospels, shortly before the death of Christ, John and James actually got Mama Zebedee to come with them. They go up to Jesus as Jesus is headed into Jerusalem to face his own cross. This is like a week or two before the cross. And they get their mom to ask Jesus, can my two sons sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come in your kingdom? And Jesus, he was like, are you sure you guys are prepared to drink the cup of suffering that I'm going to drink? And James and John are like, oh, yes. (laughs) And Jesus says, well, you know what? You guys are going to drink that cup of suffering. But ultimately, it's up to the Father to decide who's going to sit in these positions of honor at my right and at my left hand. Oh, it'll be based on the principle that the last shall be first. Whoever is the least will become the greatest. You know, I wonder if in that moment, if Jesus could have seen 10 years into the future, and he saw that this is how James would meet his death, he'd be the first of the apostles to die the death of a martyr. He definitely got his share of suffering. I also wonder if Jesus could see 50 years further beyond into the future to see the death of John, son of Zebedee. Yes, John, James's brother, would outlive his brother by 50 years and would have to watch over the course of his life every single one of the other apostles die for their faith. And the last we hear from John, he's writing from exile, a prison exile camp from an island in the Mediterranean. And so James and John, the sons of Zebedee, we see here, um, James dies first, John dies last. Why does God allow Christian workers to be killed right in the prime of their lives, right when they seem to have so much ahead of them? I have no idea. All I know is there used to be three, and now there are two, John and Peter. Well, King Herod, he saw how much this pleased the Jewish people, so he also arrested Peter, intending to do the same thing to him, apparently. This took place during the Passover celebration, so there was a lot of pilgrims in Jerusalem at this time. Apparently, Herod didn't want to kill him right during Passover week, and so threw him in prison. So here's a shot of the Temple Mount area. 
You can see on the left here, this is a scale model of the temple in the day of Jesus and also in the day of Herod and Peter and John here that we're reading about. And let's not forget how big this temple mount was. The, um, the whole temple grounds there, that would be 50% larger, both in length and in width, than Ohio uh, Stadium, the football stadium. This was enormous, 300 by 500 yards. But what some people fail to notice is over here, right, built right into the northwest corner of the temple grounds, this was called the Fortress of Antonia. Yeah, when Herod the Great built up, the temple, he also uh, had a fortress built right into the corner of the temple so he could keep an eye on things. And this, most scholars think, is where Peter would have been held in prison awaiting his trial and his execution. And so this is a close-up of that, that fortress, that prison where Peter would have been held. This would have, had, would have been crawling with soldiers. Luke tells us that Herod imprisoned Peter placing them under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. And so this was common. They would, they would rotate them every three hours. They would chain one soldier to each of the prisoner's arms. And the other two guys would be stationed kind of down the hall along the only escape route. That way somehow he could fight off the two guards. The other two would be there. And they would change the shift every three hours because they wanted to make sure that at night the, the soldiers stayed alert and the prisoner didn't get away. You know, remember in Acts chapter 5, God had already set Peter and the apostles free from a time when they were in jail. He sent an angel. He did it through miraculous means. I don't know if Herod Agrippa knows about that. He's trying to set up an extra guard there to make sure that, that, that Peter stays captured. But he was an important prisoner, and uh, he was intending to curry more favor with the people by having him executed. And so he's under the guard of four squads of four soldiers each. So if he could somehow get away from the two guards he's chained to, get past the other two guards, get past the rest of the guards in the fortress, there was still a huge iron gate at the front of this, of this, this fortress here of Antonia that there's no way he could have gotten through. And so things are looking pretty bleak for the apostle Peter. The Christians in Jerusalem had to be wondering if they were going to lose not just James, but also Peter within only a week or two of one another. This would have been devastating. Yeah, Herod intended to bring Peter out for a public trial after the Passover. And so Herod is sitting there with his soldiers, with his fortress, and the church turns to the only weapon that can be wielded by the powerless. It says in verse 5, while Peter was in prison... The church prayed very earnestly for him. And so you see the two sides aligned here, each wielding their weapons. And when it says he prayed very earnestly for him, this was a, uh, uh, this word very earnestly, it's only used one other time by Luke. And this was used of Jesus' prayer when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying so fervently that it was like he was being crushed under the weight of the cross that he was going to have to face that very next day. What were they praying? Well, they were probably praying for his release, uh, maybe for a favorable uh, verdict, maybe an acquittal, or at least a lesser sentence than what James got, which was beheaded by the sword. But they might have been praying for other things. They might have been praying for Peter's family. You know, he had a wife. He may have had kids. Uh, they may have been praying that Peter would have boldness, like Paul, the, the Apostle Paul asked for prayer for that when he's going to his trial before Caesar. He says, pray that I can be bold in proclaiming the gospel when I'm on trial and not shrink back in fear in any way. Maybe they were praying that the carnage would stop here, that even if this resulted in death for Peter, that this would not spread to any further Christians. 
They had enough problems as it was. Maybe they were praying for one another that they, they would each stand firm. Perhaps they were reminding one another of the promises of God. That could be a good thing to do during a prayer meeting. That's what they were doing in the prayer meeting we read about in Acts 4. They were praying scripture and encouraging one another. That Christ promised that we would suffer, but he promised he'd be with us through our suffering. Christ promised that no matter what happens, we'll all be together again in heaven for a sweet reunion. And so this was going on throughout the the city of Jerusalem, but they're coming down to the wire here. They had probably prayed for James. He hadn't gotten released. And now Luke tells us we're down to the very last night where the next day Peter has to stand trial. He says the night before Peter was to be placed on trial, he was asleep. How do you sleep in a time like this? Was this like the peace that passes understanding? Is this, is this some sort of like just exhaustion, depression, sleep? I don't know. But it says he was fastened with two chains between two soldiers. Can't be very comfortable. Uh, and then others stood guard at the prison gate. I mean, they, this, was, this was locked down. And, you know, Peter, regardless of what he's thinking, he, it's clear he, he has no idea about what's about to happen. Luke tells us in verse 7, Suddenly, boom, there was a bright light, and an angel of the Lord stood before Peter. Peter, who's still lying on the ground, still asleep. The angel struck him on the side to wake him up. Pretty, he kicked him pretty hard. And he said, quick, get up. The angel's trying to wake him up. Peter's looking for the snooze button. (laughs) Suddenly the chains, clink, fall right off his wrists. I don't know what the guards are doing. Must be in a trance or asleep or something. Then the angel told him, get dressed, Peter. Put on your sandals. (laughs) So he did. Still a little stunned. Now, put your coat on. (laughs) And follow me, the angel ordered. So Peter gets up and leaves the cell following the angel. He's walking down the hall. He sees the other two guards. It says, all the time, he thought it was a vision. He didn't realize it was actually happening. He's like, wow, this is really some dream I'm having. (laughs) They passed the first and then the second guard posts. They came to the iron gate leading to the city. I don't know how they're going to get through this. But Luke just tells us, it opened for them all by itself. It's like when you go to Kroger. So they pass through. They start walking down the street. And then the angel suddenly left him. And so you've got Peter just standing there in the streets of Jerusalem. He's still got chain marks on his wrists. He's got the the lines on his face, maybe, from the, the floor. And he's standing there, and it says, 
he finally came to his senses. It's really true, he said. The Lord has sent his angel and he saved me from Herod and from what the Jewish leaders had planned to do to me. He had no idea this was coming. And so what does he do? It says, when he realized this, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Yes, this was the family home of John Mark. John Mark's a guy who's going to figure in a bigger way later on in the book of Acts. This home, his mother Mary, she was probably widowed, as I mentioned, her husband. His mom was named Mary, just like everybody else in Israel back then. (laughs) There was was probably a house church that met here. This this home, some people even think that this was actually the home where Jesus had the Last Supper with his guys, the final night of his life. You know, John Mark, this is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He wrote for Peter, wrote Peter's memoirs. Uh, Some people think Mark actually followed Jesus and his guys out there on the last night of Christ's life and was watching the whole scene. It, it, it tells about this young man in Mark 14 who gets grabbed by the guards, and it says he, kind of, he gets away by wriggling out of his shirt and running off naked through the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> Some people think that was him. <laughs> Sharing his eyewitness re- recollection there. Anyway, it's John Mark's house. Peter goes there hoping there's going to be some people there. It's the middle of the night at this point. But it says that many were gathered there for prayer. And so we see that the prayers being offered up for Peter across the city of Jerusalem, this was not individual Christians down on their knees begging God for the life of Peter. No, this was Christians clumped together in groups of 10 and 20 and 30 and praying as a group for the life of Peter and for whatever was to come. And you know, when Christians get together to pray, Pretty awesome things start to happen. The Christians are gathered here and miracles start to take place. God starts working in ways you wouldn't believe. And Jesus said, when two or three are gathered together in my name, he's somehow there, right there in our midst in some sort of a special way. And that's what they were doing here. They were there praying. It was the middle of the night and they were still praying because they were so terrified about what was going to happen. Praying probably just as... Uh, you know, fervently as Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane. This, there's a little lesson here for our prayer lives that suffering can be pretty good for growth in prayer. We see Jesus praying fervently when he was suffering the greatest. We see them praying fervently at a time of great need. So if you're asking God to grow your prayer life, don't be surprised if he does it in the usual way, but allowing suffering to come into your life and drawing you closer to him through that. The question is, are you drawing closer to God through the suffering that's happening in your life, or are you shutting down and turning away? These guys responded the right way. Well, Peter goes up and he knocks at the door at the gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to open it. Who is it? Rhoda, it's me, Peter. Simon Peter. You know, the rock. Let me in. Well, Rhoda recognizes his voice, and she's so happy. It says she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the door, she ran back inside and told everyone, Peter's standing at the door. It's really him. He's there. 
interrupts the prayer meeting. <laughs> You're out of your mind, they said. Rhoda, come on, we're trying to pray for Peter here. This is serious. He's probably going to be killed tomorrow. God knows what else is going to happen. We need to pray, okay? But she kept insisting, no, it's really him. And so then they're like, oh, some of them are like, it must be his angel. God, why? Oh, God, when will the carnage stop? Where were you, God? We prayed and prayed. And now he's dead. (laughs) Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. Man, who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> Just the way he talks about us is so funny. <laughs> so Peter's wondering what's going on here. Well, eventually, they finally open the door, and they see him, and they're amazed. This Greek word means to be in a state in which things seem to make little or no sense. <laughs> Okay, so they're praying for Peter to be released. And so God releases Peter, sends him to the prayer meeting while they're praying for the release of Peter, and he's knocking at the door. And they'd rather believe either that Rhoda's crazy or it's Peter's angel than to believe that God has actually released Peter and sent him to them. Do you ever wonder if maybe my prayers aren't being answered because I'm not praying with enough faith? Because stories like this should dispel that. What scripture says is it's not the amount of faith that you have. The question is, do you have enough faith to pray? Jesus said, you can have like the smallest amount of faith imaginable, the faith the size of a mustard seed, which was like the smallest thing they could talk about. (laughs) He says, that's all you need, and you can do amazing things through faith. The, The question is, where are you putting your faith? Did you have enough faith to pray? Because if so, my friend, you're in good shape. Well done. That's all that God asks. You know, even the Christian life starts this way, where we come to him, not with all of our good works and our fervency of devotion, but we come to him with just the little faith that we have, with empty hands, and we say, I'm trusting you for my eternal destiny. That's what it means to become a Christian. That Christ is knocking at the door, and you open the door and let him in. Housby says that's the essence of prayer. Christ is knocking. We open the door and let him in. He's the one who's taking the initiative. We just need enough faith to go to him. Let your helplessness drive you to him. 
The other thing I, th I think we can learn here is that it's pretty easy to miss answered prayers. After all, he had already, in Acts 5, sent an angel to release Peter and some other guys from prison. And now here they've forgotten that. They don't even see that God has answered their prayer right in their midst, and they just want to keep going on praying and feeling bad that God hasn't answered their prayers. Well, Peter motioned for them to quiet down. You can imagine how exciting this must have been. I'd hate to be the guy that skipped out on that prayer meeting. <laughs> he finally settles the group. They're so excited, and he told them how the Lord had led him out of prison. He says, tell James and the other brothers what happened. Yeah, the whole church wouldn't have, been, wouldn't have fit in this room, but he says, tell some of the other guys what happened, okay? I, I'm not going to be able to stick around to tell them. You see James starting to rise up to a more prominent leadership position in the Jerusalem church here. We're going to see him show up several times again throughout the rest of the book of Acts, every time they're in Jerusalem. So he says, go tell James and the other brothers. And then Peter went to another place. Doesn't say where, went to hiding. Remember in Acts 5, when he got set free, God sent him right back into the temple to preach. Doesn't do that this time. He gets out of there and he goes somewhere else. Well, you can imagine Herod wasn't too happy about this. At dawn, there was a great commotion among the soldiers about what had happened to Peter. The guards are sitting there, the chain's on their arm, the other chain is empty. I don't know what happened with the guys in the hall, but it says Herod Agrippa ordered a thorough search for Peter. And when he couldn't be found, he interrogated the guards and sentenced them to death. This was standard practice. If you're a guard and you lose your prisoner, you get what they would have gotten. That's why it's so strange that when Jesus rose from the dead and got out of there, that the guards were like, yeah, the disciples stole the body. Why would the guards even admit that they lost their prisoner? Anyway. It says, after a while, Herod left Judea to stay in Caesarea for a while. This was up further on the coast, major Roman city. We, we, we've seen Caesarea actually several chapters in a row in the book of Acts. That's where Cornelius was. And it says, just a little epilogue here on this story. What ended up happening to Herod after killing James and trying to kill Peter? Luke tells us, now, Herod was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. These were the the regions just to the north of Israel. And so the people of Tyre and Sidon, they sent a delegation to make peace with them because their cities were dependent upon Herod's country for food. So kind of a, a negotiation, diplomatic maneuver. The delegates won the support of Blastus, Herod's personal assistant, and granted an appointment with Herod was granted. And this next scene, it actually takes place in this, this theater that Archaeology has uncovered. This is the theater at Caesarea Maritima, looking west out onto the Mediterranean Ocean, just beautiful. And Herod would have stood right there in the center of the theater for the speech he was about to make. When he arrived, he put on his royal robes. He sat on his throne and he made a speech to them. And the people gave him a great ovation, shouting, It's the voice of a god, not a man. Instantly, an angel of the Lord struck Herod with a sickness. Why? Because he accepted the people's worship instead of giving the glory to God. So he was consumed with worms and died. <laughs> Didn't work out too well for Herod. And 
Meanwhile, the word of God continued to spread, and there were many new believers. I guess he didn't stop the church after all, did he? Well, you're like, okay, this sounds like mythology. This sounds like fiction. Come on, give me a break. This is completely not credible. What are we reading here? Well, actually, we're reading pretty good history. If you read Josephus, a Roman Jewish historian, John Stott tells us about Josephus' account of the death of Herod Agrippa I. Look what Stott writes. Josephus also described in graphic detail the circumstances surrounding Herod's death and his antiquities. You can, you can read it for yourself if you want. But look at Stott's analysis. He says, Josephus and Luke's accounts differ in a few details, which shows they're independent. So it's not like Luke was working from Josephus or vice versa. No, they both had their own independent recounting of the death of Herod Agrippa. Both agree Herod was in Caesarea at the time. That occurs in both of their accounts. Josephus adds that Herod had gone there to participate in a festival in honor of Caesar, which was attended by a large crowd of leading citizens. Both mention explicitly the royal robes that he was wearing. They looked quite splendid. Josephus adds that his garment was made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful. It shone so brightly in the morning sun that the people hailed him as a god. Yes, that, that sunlight reflecting off his robes. He looked radiant. And they were, they, were, they were cheering and worshiping Herod. And upon this, Josephus says, the king did not rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery, that, that Herod did not reject the praise and the worship. And Luke and Josephus therefore agree that God's judgment fell on him because he glorified himself instead of God. That was Josephus' take as well. Luke says he was eaten by worms. Josephus is content with the more general statement that a severe pain arose in his belly. So some kind of intestinal worm is what he got here, which became so violent that he was carried into his palace and five days later he died. So immediately he was hit with this severe pain and he died just a few days later. Probably of worms, just like Luke says. Pretty cool. I love it when the Bible lines up with secular history like this. Especially when you'd be tempted at first to be skeptical of this account. Anyway, what are some lessons we can draw from this story in Acts chapter 12? I just want to make a few observations. One, we see Christians praying in groups. No Lone Ranger Christianity here. We see the Christians banding together. And like I mentioned earlier, Jesus said there's something special that happens when Christians get together in groups to pray. And um, a, lot of our, a lot of our home churches have prayer meetings. A lot of us pray in small groups all the time, even if it's just two people meeting for some study, for some fellowship, but also some prayer ends up being part of that. And uh, I just wanted to add a few tips, a few pointers for how to make the most of our times of group prayer. And what I would say is show up. Show up for that prayer meeting. How'd you like to be the guy that missed the prayer meeting here where they saw Peter, his first account of how the angel led him out of prison? Yeah, you can miss a lot if you miss out on the, on the prayer meeting that your home church has each week. You miss a lot if you pass up on opportunities to pray with other believers. Also, when you show up, pray. I'm always kind of surprised that people show up at prayer meetings and then they won't pray. 
It's like, what did you think we were going to do here? <laughs> and when you pray in groups like this, you want to pray nice and short and loud prayers. In fact, the larger the group, the shorter and louder you should be. There's nothing worse than somebody rambling on and on with a five-minute mumbling prayer in a group prayer. That is not, that is not good. You know, that's good for when it's just you and the Lord, but when you've got a group of people, you need to keep it shorter. And there's a certain energy you get as multiple people pray short, loud, enthusiastic prayers. Affirm others' prayers. You know, our, our church in general could stand to be a whole lot more affirming. There you go. That sort of thing is what I'm talking about. <laughs> we need to affirm people's prayers. This is a way we get energy. This is a way we can, the whole body of Christ can be like, I also count myself in on that prayer. And we get multiple people affirming these prayers. And um, the more people affirm a prayer, it kind of guides the, the group. It kind of teaches people how to, pr- how to pray by which, groups, by which prayers the group affirms. It also encourages people, too, who are scared about praying to affirm their prayers. Um, make sure we have both gratitude and prayer requests in our meetings. We don't want to just get together and just ask God for all kinds of stuff. We also want to make sure to thank God. Otherwise, we, we overlook the things that he's done. I do think it's good to keep a prayer list. It kind of gives some guidance, some structure to the prayer meeting. Most groups even have somebody assigned to lead the meeting to try to keep, keep things moving along. But one nice thing about the prayer list is when a prayer gets answered, you know it. It's written right there for all to see. And it's pretty amazing. I'll look back at prayer lists from a year ago, and I'm like, I can't believe that person used to be on our prayer list. They're like a member of our group now. They're a worker in our group. Finally, one, one feature you see in the Acts 4 prayer meeting is they're praying scripture. What a cool way to both pray prayers of gratitude and praise, but to pray scripture. Wouldn't that be a cool way to thank God and praise God, praying short, short bursts of scripture? I think this is, I've actually found this to be pretty cool for my own personal prayer life as well. Kind of gives language of prayer. Not that we repeat the same thing over and over again through rote memorization, but where we pray from the heart, the language of Scripture. And so Christians praying in groups. We see it here in Acts 12. We see it in our fellowship today. We need to make the most of that, not just go through the motions. Secondly, we noticed that all you need is enough faith to pray, that they didn't even really believe that much that Peter was going to get released. They were shocked when he was released. And so what this means is, no matter how much faith we have, we need to find a way to pray. We need to find a way to pray every day. And, and I think th- the starting point for prayer is to stop berating yourself for not praying fervently enough or often enough. I used to start every prayer session with God, I'm just so sorry, I haven't been praying enough lately. And uh, man, I just really, it's, it's been like, it's been like a week here. I'm looking at the date on my last prayer journal entry, and I'm just like, oh, this is pathetic. It's been two weeks, whatever. And I just would start by just feeling so terrible. That is not a way to build a prayer life. Stop worrying about how you haven't prayed enough or how you don't pray enough. Just pray. Start by talking about what God thinks about you, how much God loves you, how much God has done for you. That's the starting place for prayer, and that's, gonna, that's what's going to grow your faith and make you want to pray more and more. The other thing is we need to find a way to pray every day. I think this is a great goal 
that I'm going to have a daily prayer time, and it's going to feel weird if I go a whole day without getting my, my, my prayer time. You got to find something that works for you. I think it's good to have a place you can focus. Maybe you need a big honking pair of headphones to tell your roommates I'm praying right now. You can be the prayer headphones. <laughs> my wife will actually put the exact same classical music on every single day when she sits down to get her word in prayer time. It's almost like it just triggers her, her body into, oh, we're, we're spending time with the Lord now. But I, I, th- I think trying to minimize distractions, if you need to turn your phone off, do that, or go airplane mode, something to, to, to be able to focus in. We've got enough barriers to prayer. We don't need to add any to our prayer space. Prayer lists or prayer cards, those are, those are ones you read a lot in the prayer literature. You talk to people that pray, they usually have something along these lines. Um, I think if you're going to have these, I think one, one barrier I used to have is I, would, I felt like every single bullet on my prayer list I had to pray for like five minutes over. I think moving a little more quickly through these has, has helped me in my prayer life. I always, I always hesitate to talk about my prayer life because I start talking about some things that are working and then they stop working for me. But I'm going I'm to risk it here tonight, okay? But prayer lists or prayer cards, these can both be pretty good. Prayer cards are just index cards with some, you know, a person and then some things written for them on there, whatever. It comes out of Paul Miller's book, Praying Life. Prayer journal or prayer walks also. Some people like to walk and pray. Prayer journaling can be pretty good. It's, it's maybe a little easier to process through what happened yesterday or the day before that or whatever, processing the things going on in your life with the Lord. It's maybe a little bit easier to, to listen to God sometimes. We've got to shut our mouths sometimes, too, when we're praying and listen to what God might be saying to us, waiting on the Lord. I think it's a good idea to read some books about prayer and interview people that are good at prayer. I find every time I read a book on a prayer, my prayer life gets a boost. And so maybe that's something you can try if you're looking for ways to improve your prayer life. But we, got, we, we need to find a way to pray. We need to find a way to talk to our Heavenly Father. And as we do that, that's how you're going to see your faith grow. That's how you're going to find yourself wanting to pray more. Think about what our fellowship would look like if every single person was going before God every single day, both in, in praise and gratitude for who God is, what God has done, affirming what God thinks about me, and then turning and, and beseeching the God of the universe to move in specific ways in specific people's lives. I can't imagine what, what would happen under those conditions. It's also easy to miss answered prayers. That's another thing we learned from this story. It's easy to miss answered prayers. That's why I think we need gratitude. We need to just intentionally build gratitude into our prayer lives Reading back over old journals can be really good as well. This is something I've done in the past, and it really is faith-building to look back and see the ways God has moved. Group prayer can help with this too. When you pray as a group, other people might remember ways God has answered prayers. And you kind of benefit from their good memory, from their spiritual way of recounting things. And finally, God doesn't always answer prayers in the ways that we would expect. And that's what you see in this, this narrative as well, this story. I think especially when Christians face suffering. You know, God, God does not exempt. He doesn't exempt us from suffering and pain and death. 
And, um, you know, in the face of suffering, sometimes really tragic suffering, when tragedy strikes in our lives, you know, some people never even give them a chance to answer. Either they don't, they never ask God for rescue, for deliverance, for God to work in this situation, or they compromise. They give up. They, they find unethical ways to get out of the, the bind that they're in. They just lower their commitment level. And so that's unfortunately how some people respond to suffering. Sometimes, though, you get what Peter got. You get a miracle. You see God come through in these amazing ways. And when that happens, I say, praise God. That is awesome to be a part of. And we see that all the time in our prayers in this fellowship. But other times, unfortunately, it turns out like it did for James where they were probably praying just as much for James. And he died. He died. God didn't answer that prayer the way that they had hoped that he would, and it was super painful. Yeah, God doesn't spare his kids from pain, suffering, or death. No. Sometimes he allows that into our lives. And in cases like that, for some people, their faith is shattered. I've known people that have faced down death and they'd sunk into this, this misery, this gloom, this unbelief. They went on strike in their prayer lives. They went on strike against God. They allowed their, their, their thoughts, their doubting thoughts, just to go on and on and on without answering them. And their spiritual lives completely dried up. Some are not even walking with God today because of what happened when they faced tragedy. Maybe some of you here in this room have faced tragedy and you're doing real bad spiritually. You're on strike spiritually because of what God allowed to happen. And I'm pleading with you, don't go any further down that road. Turn back to him in faith. Allow him to comfort you. Get answers for your doubts. Don't allow your faith to be shattered. I'm glad these Christians kept praying even after the death of James. They didn't give up on God and they saw God come through. For some people, when they face tragedy, their faith comes alive for the first time. I've known many people who were Christians, very compromised, living for the world, and then something terrible happened. And it woke them up. They realized living for the world is miserable. This is not the way I should be living. And they started following God with, with a clarity they just didn't have before. And so God can use suffering like a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But for some people, they're Christians, they're walking Christians, they're healthy Christians, and tragedy comes into their lives, and they're broken, and their world is shattered, but they draw even closer to God. And they shine with the love and hope and faith that can only come through breaking. And they're a testimony to the watching world. They're a comfort to other people in the future who are going to suffer in the same way. You see, God is always going to get the last word. And if it seems like he hasn't gotten the last word, well, that's because the last word hasn't been spoken yet. And whether it's in this life 
Sometimes he comes through in this life in ways that we can see. But what he promises, no matter what happens in this life, he will make things right on that day. Well, he will judge evil. He will judge sin. And he will vindicate his people. And all the world will see the reality of the love of God. And so <clears throat> that's the story of Peter. It's our last real Peter story in this book. Yeah, God, you say in James 4 too that there's times where we, we don't have simply because we do not ask. And that's really sad, Lord. I, I, I guess it's one thing if, if you don't want to give something to us, but it's another thing if we just never even ask for it, God. I pray we'd become an a, a church that's more and more of an asking church, Lord. I pray we would learn to enjoy our times of prayer, that we'd learn to enjoy our times of group prayer even more than we already do, and that we would see our faith grow as we see your power unleashed in this world, God. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.